For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. This most familiar verse to us we know comes from John chapter 3, verse 16, if for no other reason than seeing the sign of it at some baseball or football game, usually lifted up by somebody wearing a rainbow hairdo. Yet it is probably the most well-known verse in all of the scripture for Christians. Today I'm going to read the context of where this verse comes from, because the context of the text is as important as the text itself. So may God open up to us an understanding of this word. It comes in the third chapter of John when Nicodemus, who is a brilliant scholar of Judaism, comes to Jesus by night, symbolically meaning in the darkness, looking for the light, thinking that Jesus might in fact be the presence of the light. They began a conversation and Jesus seemingly talks over Nicodemus' head. Jesus says, unless you are born from above, not again, that came later by uh, the evangelical church, the interpretation is, unless you are born from above, that is by the power of the Spirit, you cannot understand what I am saying to you, and you cannot see the light. And they had this conversation back and forth, and Nicodemus At least Nicodemus sort of ends up in the shade, not the darkness or the light, but he's hovering around in the shade. So in this morning's passage, which begins in the 11th, uh, excuse me, the 14th verse of the third chapter, this is what follows as Jesus' words to the church and to us in relationship to this conversation with Nicodemus. And John has Jesus say, in the name, in the same way that Moses lifted the serpent up in the desert. It's a reference to a text in Numbers when the people of Israel traveling in the promised land were griping and whining because they didn't like the manna bread and the water or the leadership or the new hymnal. And so as they traveled through the wilderness, God finally got fed up and sent a bunch of snakes to bite them and many died. So Moses made a a brass copy, a bronze copy of a snake and put it on top of a large stick. And when Moses would hold it up in the wilderness and the people looked at it after being bitten by the snake, they would not die. So John uses that reference immediately by saying, in the same way that Moses lifted the serpent up in the desert so people could have something to see and believe, it is necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up. And that might be interpreted on the cross or at ascension and during resurrection. It is necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up and everyone who looks up to him, trusting and expectant, will gain a real life, eternal life. I'm using a modern translation. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his only one and son. And this is why, so that no one need be lost. But by believing in him, anyone can have a whole 
and lasting life. Eternity, life eternal. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to help bring reconciliation into the world. Anyone who trusts in him is reconciled. Anyone who refuses to trust him has long since been under the sentence of judgment without even knowing it. And why? Because of that person's failure to trust or believe in the one-of-a-kind Son of God when introduced to him. You see, this is the crisis we're in. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and delusion, hates God light and won't come near it, fearing a painful painful exposure. But anyone working and living in truth and reality welcomes God light. So the work can be seen for the God work that it is. This is the word of the Lord. If it looks like I'm genuflecting, it's only because I have this little fly that's flying in front of me. I can only assume it's the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't help but hear this passage and immediately be reminded of the work of Billy Graham, who died some two weeks ago. The statistics are amazing. 215 million people in 85 countries heard him over 400 crusades for 60 years. In 1957, he packed Madison Square Garden every day for 16 weeks. In Seoul in 1973, he drew more than a million people. And in Moscow, that God-starved place in 1992, 185,000 came. With television from 1947 to 2008, it is estimated that 2.2 billion people watched his crusades or listened on the radio to his Hour of Decision program. It is said that he saved the souls of at least 3.2 million people by inviting them to come forward and give their life over to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. When he died two weeks ago, many, many people mourned, but many people celebrated too. He was always humble, yet a great man, a great and powerful man, an evangelist, a communicator for the cause of Christ. And in his life, day by day, it became apparent that he continued to learn and grow and change more like Christ. When I first went into ministry at Union Seminary, our class went to a Billy Graham crusade, and I have to admit that I sat upstairs in the balcony looking all critically down at this whole scene dressed in my academic elitist robes of ministry, thinking, yeah, it's all so easy, isn't it? You just simply hear Billy Graham preach, and then you walk down the aisle and give yourself over to Jesus one time, and then everything will be completely fine. 
I was pretty critical. The more I began to learn who he was and to see over time how much he changed from a really right-wing fundamentalist evangelist to a much more progressive evangelist, I began to admire him. I'm not talking about Franklin, I'm talking about his father. And in that change, he began to befriend Martin Luther King. And granted, he got close to Richard Nixon, but I'm not sure that's a critical thing. I mean, who more than Richard Nixon needed the presence of Billy Graham in his midst? Lord knows what he would have ended out without Billy Graham hanging around. He grew more and more to see that the amazing light and love of God is way larger, way more inclusive than he originally thought. So that if you Google Billy Graham before he died, the first Google that you would get would show that he's excoriated by the radical evangelical side of things as being the devil and Satan and the prince of darkness because he is too inclusive. I guess it's all relative. I've grown to appreciate Billy Graham because I saw how he grew and how his preaching grew and his preaching, which was basically centered on this text, God loves us so much that he sent his son to die, suffer for us. And since we are so deeply lost in the darkness of sin, we cannot see what God has done unless we step into the light of Christ's love and forgiveness. We're blind. But if we give ourselves over to believing and trusting in Jesus, and then illumined by that light of Christ, we can now see what God is like and who we are like, whose we are and who we are, and begin a new life forgiven. That's his message. Now, we have to admit that not everyone wants to come into that light of Jesus Christ. This is the crisis we're in, John writes. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and illusion, hates God light and won't come near it, fearing a painful exposure. But anyone working and living in truth and reality welcomes God light so the work can be seen for the God work that it is. Not everybody likes the light. As Fred Craddock said, when you turn the lights on in the cabin in the woods, what you see are all the cockroaches scurrying for the darkness. The light illumines and exposes who we are and what we do. We really don't want it that bright. Recently, I was in a conversation uh, with a man who has, I think, had five wives and now is with a girlfriend who has lost his job about six times, who is addicted to beer and is basically lost in his own darkness. 
So he comes up to me and he says, uh, Preacher, how's the God business? How's the church business going for you? And I immediately got defensive because in the first place, you know, I don't see the church as a business. There is business of the church. But the church is a community, the body of Christ, the people of God. It takes business to do it. But we're not in the church business. To me, that sounds like selling. And you know, I can understand where he can interpret that because he had been watching a lot of television shows of what they call prosperity preachers, I won't give any names, who stand up and say, if you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then all of your troubles will be over. You're going to get the car and the house and the husband or wife and children that you've always wanted. If you simply do that, all your, all your, all your hopes will be met. And he said, that's the business I'm talking about. And I said, look, I don't, I don't preach that. In the first place, because I see that the power of God is made more real in suffering as we see in Jesus Christ. The love of God made more real in suffering as we see on the cross than in any other reality. I don't preach that. But I do preach that our life will be changed by the power of Christ if we accept it. Well, he said, I just get all bent out of shape about how much money we pay these big steeple preachers and especially these nonprofit people who run these businesses and they get paid a million, two million dollars a year for running a a Habitat or Salvation Army. It just drives me crazy. And I said, so how much money should they get paid? I don't know. $250,000 would be enough. In fact, they shouldn't even be professionals. What we should do is let all the retired CEOs in America then turn and run all of the nonprofits in America, and they don't need that money, and they can work for a lot less. Which led me to ask, uh, Michael, uh, are you connected to a nonprofit? Tell me about your own nonprofit. I don't do that stuff. I just don't trust them. What he's saying, of course, is I'd rather live in my dim darkness than move out into this world where the reality is light and brightness for fear that I might have to live up to something greater than myself. When you don't want to be exposed or change, we stay hidden in our cynicism. I was having lunch with a minister friend uh, recently, right after Dr. Graham's death, talking about preaching and how much it has changed from the, you could argue with this, 20-minute sermon of fairly strong academic persuasion. We were taught that you should spend one hour of presentation for every minute of presentation, one hour of preparation for every minute of presentation. And And how in the old days we could stand up and do this and the congregation could listen. But now with attention spans being dropped to whatever stage they are, 15 minutes is probably too long of a sermon and they need to have a lot of sermon uh, stories in them. So right out of the blue, my minister friend asked me after talking about Billy Graham, tell me, Steve, uh, have you ever had an altar call in your preaching sermon? Uh, No. Presbyterians don't do that. Have you ever had anyone come up to you in your congregation and tell you that because of your preaching, they have committed or recommitted their lives to Jesus Christ? 
Um, maybe that's happened, but nobody's ever come up to me to say that. Every week I laughed. I, I try to sound academic, and maybe I hedge a little bit with that and, and always lay it out there as the congregation's decision without actually saying it out loud that every day and every moment comes a moment to decide, as the old hymn says, and that at every opportunity and every relationship we have a moment to decide. Are we going to live in the light or are we going to choose darkness? Are we going to live out of the life and light of Jesus Christ or are we going to live out of some worldly value system that calls that into question? My preacher friend was looking at me in the eyes and then asked, have you ever brought anyone to Christ in some other way than your preaching? I'm feeling convicted here, I said, so what's the deal? I'm only asking you because I feel convicted too, so I want to know. And I said, well, I think so, but I've done so not not so much through preaching, but through relationships, through pastoring, through being connected to those in my life. In that sense, then, yes, people have come to me to say that I brought them to a new place, a new relationship in Christ. But it left me wondering, should I be more direct and more inviting? Should I have an altar call each Sunday? Should I invite all of you who want to commit or recommit your lives to Jesus Christ to meet me and Bill over here in the corner for prayer. I was sitting at Starbucks uh, at that round big table in the middle of Starbucks down here in Five Points a month or so ago, reading a book on the history of Christianity. The young man across from the table looking at his iPhone looked over at me reading the book and he said, excuse me, I hope you don't mind if I interrupt, but I want to ask, are you a Christian? Well, I'm trying to be, I said. He raised his eyebrows. How about you, I said. Are you a Christian? He said, I used to be. I grew up in one of those really staunch, Bible-thumping, fundamentalist churches, and I gave my life to Christ at 12 years old when I went down the aisle and was confirmed into the church. That was my moment of Christianity And all I heard every single Sunday was this God of fear and hellfire and damnation. And so when I grew up and went to college, I began to question that God. If that's the God that we are given, do I really want to be in relationship with him? And then he looked at me and said, is that the God that you say you you follow? I said, I'm not big for hellfire and damnation gods, to tell you the truth. But the message I understand God came to bring is a message of love and embrace and unconditional affection made real through this living, suffering one we call his son, Jesus. As I understand the issue about being a Christian, it's more about trying to live out of that gift of God to us, of our being loved that unconditionally, and of trying to live more fully into being like Jesus. For me, at least, I said, accepting this is true, that Jesus is 
the living word to us, God's message to us, that we are loved so deeply. So deeply we cannot articulate it. So deeply we're not even aware of it based on nothing about us other than the fact that we are a child of God, born in the image of God, and God as our creator has chosen to love us. So I'm not too big on this hell stuff, I said. It seems to me that most of us live in our own hell, our own made hell, all the time by choosing not to live in the light of Christ. What about all these people who don't confess Jesus Christ? He said, are they, are they doomed? Are they going to live in the darkness for the rest of their life? And I said, look, I'm not God, and so I'm not going to tell you who I think is in and who is out. And usually the people who think they're in are doing so because they don't want other people to be in. So I'm not going to tell you who's in and out. I, I can say to you, however, that it's not that wherever Jesus is, there is love and life and light. It is wherever the love is and the light is and the life is, there is Jesus. And it, might be not, it may not be known by the name of Jesus, but wherever life, love, and light exist, the presence of Christ is made real. So I asked him finally, what would it take you to reinvest your life? No, I couldn't use the word commit. Too, too strong. To, to examine your life. What would it take you to reinvest on becoming again a Christian, not based on that old hellfire damnation stuff, but on the possibility that you were called by God and chosen by God and loved by God unconditionally, just that made real in Jesus. What's, what are the chances? And by the way, I am a Presbyterian pastor at Riverside Presbyterian Church just around the corner. Maybe it's one of you. I was struggling over this passage all week long, trying to bring it into the focus because it's so well known. And Friday's my day off, so I played a little golf, I took a nap, I woke up. As soon as I woke up, it hit me like an epiphany. I stood up and I was standing there dancing, I was singing, it was, it was charisma. It, I was speaking in tongues, I'm dancing all the way around the kitchen. I, I've got it, I've got it, all, all of this anguish, I figured it out. What I figured out was what John is trying to tell us is what Jesus wants us to know. And what Jesus wants us to know is what God wants us to know. And what is it that Jesus and God want us to know? That we are loved based solely on our beingness. And that all the love we experience in life is just an approximation of the reality of the love of God in the kingdom of God, and that it is all around us now. It's not about heaven so much as it is about life. And that Jesus became like us so that we can become like Jesus. And that there is this reality in the world that we miss unless we choose to live in the light, to be illumined by the light and love of God. We miss it. Otherwise, 
we're living in this illusion of reality, but the reality itself is only seen through the illuminating power of God's love. It's the kingdom of God, which is the very place and source